0: In May this year, the Victorian Government took a significant first step on a process of truth, healing and justice for its First Nations peoples. The establishment of the Aboriginal-led Uruk Justice Commission began the country's first formal truth-telling process into past injustices committed against First Nations people. Established in collaboration with the First Peoples Assembly, it's designed to operate alongside and complementary to the progression of the state's treaty process. The Commission has been tasked with looking into a broad range of areas, including policing and criminal justice, child protection and family and welfare matters. Professor Eleanor Burke is a Werdigaya and Whamber Elder and Chair of the Commission. Professor Burke has previously held roles as Co-Chair of Reconciliation Victoria and as a Board Member of Native Title Services Victoria. She's worked to advance Aboriginal education for more than 40 years and she joins me now. Professor Burke, welcome to the program. And since this is the first time we've had the privilege of speaking to you on the show, I thought we'd start by getting to know you a little bit more and ask you where you grew up and what your early life was like. Well, I I
1: was born in um, Hamilton, Western Victoria, which is about 100 kilometres from where I now live. That was where my father's family property was. But mum was uh, homesick for her family when I was about two and a half, they moved back to the Murray Valley to a property outside Swan Hill in a place called Murraydale, a very small place. I think it's um, in Barapa country there. I'm not 100% sure about a map. But I grew up there and being close to mum's family, uh, we were surrounded by Her family, she was one of eight siblings and I had uncles and aunts and my grandmother and grandfather all around me in my growing up, which um, was very precious and uh, also gave me a strong sense of my identity uh, in that family. And because my grandmother was a storyteller as well to us, Children, we um, we learnt, were told a few things, many of which I can't remember properly now because of when you're very young, it doesn't sink in in the way you wish it had. them. but until I went to school, I really thought Aboriginal people were the were the people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I often talk about my awakening because first I noticed I was the only brown skinned child. It was a small school, about maybe up to 40 kids, a small school with a row per class of primary school. And the second thing that happened was I I used to get knocked off my bike and pummeled a bit going home uh, from school by a couple of boys. And they've just picked on me. And it didn't stop until my bigger cousins came and met me and gave them a whack so <laughs> that that, cha- that changed my view about how other people saw, <laughs> saw us. But my grandmother was constant in my life. So she she was very strong and proud of who she was, and that really sort of I suppose made me feel strong too about who I was while I was uh, as I was growing. But un- un- puzzled by you know the
0: reactions as we got out into the wider world. I was, obviously, um, you know, I've, I've known you since I, ever I can remember as, as one of the leaders in the education space, and then, of course, well beyond that. But I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, obviously, you've just mentioned your grandmother, but you had obviously had such a strong sense of social justice and such a strong sense about the importance of education really early on. And I was wondering if you could share with us, who were the people who shaped your worldview and, and kind of inspired you? with those values?
1: Well well, there's uh, a, I suppose a number of uh, people along the journey of course as you know you meet different people at different stages but my grandmother was a constant uh, really and she lived to be 90 uh, and those the grandchildren that had more to do with her have all have that kind of strength of her sense of being Aboriginal, uh, which is interesting and really important to us. But she was born on Ebenezer Mission and she was educated by the uh, Moravian missionaries. And it was a good education for the time. You know, she went to completed what uh, would have been full primary school there. Uh, She was a teenager when they left the mission and went to my grandfather's country but she believed in education so she had all of her children go to school when they moved to the Murray Valley and she had her family and I see photographs of my mother and aunts or uncles where you know there are three black children in these black and white photos who probably looked like I felt when I went to primary school and had those uncomfortable experiences. But she was she did believe in education and so we had that in our family. It was hard to do at different times. But I think the second influence was when I married and went to Melbourne to live and made contact with the Aborigines Advancement League there. Which initially was about social things, but it was easy to get involved with the Aborigines Advancement League. In the way it was, it was a kind of place that welcomed people, and you could get involved with the um, the uh, management committee. And there I met wonderful women who uh, who's you know who've been mentors for me. People like Auntie Jerry Briggs and Merle Jacka and Elizabeth Hoffman and Joycey Johnson—so many women who were just amazing and did amazing things at that time. And you know, I'm talking about in the um, mid '70s and so on. You know, there were things happening. They really imprinted uh, again you know, the strength of what people can do together, and especially what our uh, women have done for us along the way. So that, that was um, this, when I got involved in, I suppose, what people would call Aboriginal politics or was able to participate in decision-making on uh, an Aboriginal organisation. It eventually led to my involvement in education, which came, I suppose, around 1976, with the formation of the Victorian V-A-E-C-G, Victorian Education Consultative Group, uh, which Colin was setting up at that time uh, when he was in state education. That was the first uh, time I got involved in education and I felt a bit, wasn't sure how I'd go with that. But being on the ground floor, it was a wonderful experience because other things were happening at the national level as well by then in education around the Commonwealth Schools Commission report and uh, recommendations from it, the establishment of the National Aboriginal Education Committee, which I had served on both for Victoria and for the ACT.
0: You must be able to look back. I mean, you came in in the 1970s you and Colin were just such leaders in the space really early on, opening the doors to my generation and those of us that have come along afterwards. When you look back at where we are now to where we are then, what do you think?
1: Well, it's very different, isn't it, uh, now? But at that time, we were pretty focused on things that were missing. You know, the the fact that, uh, you know, our kids weren't coming through the schools at, and, or finishing school. Those are the sort of things. We, the fact that we couldn't identify enough teachers at that time and the NAEC had their 1,000 teachers by, I can't remember what date, 1990 I think it was, as a project which was achieved. Most of the people went and worked for the government because there was such a need for Aboriginal involvement in other spaces. But it was um, it was quite exhilarating, really, when you think about it, because uh, those networks were so rich. That's when we met people from other states. That's when we, you know, I met your father, I met people in the Territory, I met people from the West. You know, it was just amazing. And uh, going and living in Canberra, that was the kind of mix that was there as well. So we were living uh, in a time that was quite rich in our relationship building, I would say, across
0: the country. You've also, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, spent significant time in the reconciliation sphere as well. How important is the truth-telling process as part of that?
1: Well, reconciliation. I suppose in some ways you could oh, you could say it's a disappointment. But in, in Victoria, it was important because here in Victoria we've had a tradition of non Aboriginal people working with uh, Aboriginal people for the 1967 referendum through for CATSE, and as, as happened in other states, of course. But again, those networks were there, and Aboriginal and non Aboriginal people working together to make that referendum successful and um, I think we've, there's a kind of, um, there's a population of people who have that in the, in their family and their knowledge where Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people worked here and the old Australian Aborigines League had about 30 branches, you know, which had mostly non-Aboriginal people with Aboriginal people from some of the towns. So there's a kind of base there with, that could receive people interested in reconciliation. But the problem with reconciliation on, for my part was that it, it was really about us being reconciled with what was there, whereas we really very quickly got to, you know, wanting to talk about the land we'd lost and having rights about land and then things happened in that space fairly quickly after the Mabo decision and... That was never intended to be applicable in Victoria. Well, that's been proven wrong in Victoria, where we've got uh, native title. I think at least three mm-hmm. native title uh, determinations positive, and uh, you know the one negative, the first one, which is, uh, you know, we're very, very sad about. So there was so much, you know, when you when you talk about it now and, and reflect back, there's a lot of different things happening. That when we say it in a short. Interview like this, uh, it, you know, it sounds easy. All those things contribute to each of us making things better, I think.
0: I guess this is a good point to come to the Uruk Commission. Can you tell us more about its role and scope?
1: Yes, well, again, it's the culmination of the last 20 years of this century, really, and being away from Victoria when I came back. In, 1998-9. Victoria had changed and moved on from wanting land rights. People were identifying themselves by name, which was something that wasn't really, nobody was interested and in, almost not allowed talking about who we were. And I come back and we have a land justice group wanting uh, recognition of um, places people came from and wanting to work something out with the government. And that took a little while to uh, settle and the first thing that was a big change was Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council being established to uh, replacing the old Archaeological Relics Acts that existed around the country and that was a big shift because it meant our people would be able to be involved in decisions about things to do with cultural heritage matters uh, on country. Still working for the government, though, and without any structures. But that combined with the native title decisions strengthened the ability of groups to be recognised to having status over their places, their country and their sites. But sometimes it was an intervention for governments or you know, for government's benefits, but it was also good for our people, uh, even though the limitations were perhaps uh, the fact that, you know, we're still in a colonial construct with the kind of legislation that was written uh, and probably without much consultation with our mob. So that was the beginning and other things followed, like the um, the decision, the native title decisions, the first one, 2005, I can't, which was my own group. Uh, Beringi the known as Watchabalak decision. Others followed. Then we got the state looking at making traditional owner settlements under state legislation. So all of those things were steps to getting to Yurok. And then more, in more recent years, the, um, the idea of treaty came up, uh, when the Andrews government first came to power and The Government was prepared to hear what we wanted to say about that and that eventually led to the um, Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, which uh, was headed by then Commissioner Jill Gallagher and that was to create a framework about how to go about achieving treaty and that was another step in this direction and then... The idea was to have an elected body from the whole of the state of Victoria and and, uh, electorates to um, work and consult with people about how to proceed with treaty business and in the legislation, the treaty legislation that was developed in that time, there were tasks given to what has become the First People's Assembly as that elected body and they, in their wisdom and first years' activity last year were quick to spot that, you know, without truth-telling as a foundation, what, you know, treaty wouldn't be right. So that's how that happened and they persuaded the government to agree to uh, Uruk as a uh, truth or justice commission. And, And here we are with letters patent with a very broad mandate And a big, big task in terms of um, uh, establishing public records, sharing with the overall Victorian population and creating systemic change.
0: There's obviously, as you say, there's been a whole lot of steps that have occurred in Victoria to get to this particular moment in terms of truth-telling. And you've mentioned the representative body and the treaty process I was just wondering what your uh, perspective is on how this movement at the state level in Victoria might have implications for, say, a treaty or a truth-telling process at a national level.
1: Well, that's a hard one. Dealing with the Commonwealth, I think, is more complex with the uh, the states and the territories as we've (laughs) <laughs> seen with COVID. But I think it does fly the flag for other states to, to do things. And as you'd be aware, there is interest in other states for treaty process. My personal view is, that you know, with the Commonwealth, it's really hard to do anything. <laughs> They're still talking about whether or not we should have a voice to the the government in a way, which seems no brainer to me. I don't know If the momentum can come, it should have come out of the, you know, the Uluru statement from the heart, but, um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It seems like, you know, in Victoria, we've taken over 200 years to get to this and. It's way too long, way too long.
0: In all the progress you are making in Victoria, and it obviously now has become, as you say, it's a bit of a beacon for other states in terms of what's possible. And, you know, as you mentioned, you've had all of these steps at the state level, building on a whole lot of advocacy work and hard work. Uh, Do you anticipate that, you know, as, as you get to a point where you're actually being able to tell stories that haven't been heard that mean a lot, to the First Nations people who were telling them that there might be pushback against the process, and how are you anticipating dealing with that
1: i'm sure there will be pushback uh, I mean we are in Victoria where the media is strong and uh, we, you know we already see things uh, every now and again on you know Facebook in the papers about you know why why don 't we move on those sorts of things. But, yes, of course that will be there, and we uh, I think we believe in the justice of what we're doing as Commission, we're all very strong and very committed to um, delivering the objectives of um, of our uh, letters patent. and part of that is about bringing the Victorian population along with us, you know so that they understand, they understand how this state was settled, how some people got rich, how some people were massacred, how hard it was for Aboriginal people when they were moved off their land uh, and dislocated from place. But we've still survived. We want to share all of that. And we believe that by creating a space where we can share the truth of the settlement of this state, that people will uh, understand the richness of our culture, the diversity and strength and resilience of our people.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us this evening, Professor Burke, Auntie Eleanor, so respected in so many realms. And it's such a privilege to talk to you, to hear your thoughts, your inspiration and to celebrate your leadership. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Larissa. It's lovely hearing your voice too. I hope we get to catch up sometime down the track.
0: Oh, me too. i look forward to that. Professor Eleanor Burke is the Chair of the Uruk Justice Commission of Victoria.